Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Election Countdown your regular update on the UK's general election from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. As you've guessed, our regular politics podcast has become the election countdown for the next few weeks to guide you through the highs and lows of the campaign. This is one of our mini midweek updates to give you the latest on what's been happening. In this episode, we'll be having a look at the first TV debate where Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn went head to head and nobody particularly emerged triumphant. We'll also be looking at some of the party's manifestos with the Lib Dem launching their plan for government and Labour set to announce its plans in the coming days. I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Shrimsley, our chief UK political commentator, chief political correspondent Jim Picard and political correspondent Laura Hughes from our room in Westminster. Thank you all for joining. So let's start with the TV debate. This was the first head-to-head debate between whoever will be the next Prime Minister on Tuesday evening on ITV. Robert Shrimsley, you were there in Salford for the debate in the spin room. Before we go to the debate, just explain what the spin room is and why you decided to spend two and a half hours on a train to go and experience it. Okay, well, that's quite an important existential question that I found myself asking myself several points during the evening. The spin room literally is a place where all the journalists gather to watch the debate and where a significant number of politicians from all the relevant parties gather to explain to us how well their leader did. And so from the view of that spin room, how do you think the debate went and what were the various parties saying? Because as I said in my introduction... It didn't really feel as if anyone triumphed. Nobody did amazingly well, but nobody did particularly badly either. So much like this election so far, it feels like nothing much has changed. I think it depends to some extent on what expectations and what concerns each party would have had before the debate. Boris Johnson went into this debate clearly the front runner in the polls. And so actually the concern from a number of people around the Conservative camp was that actually he might lose ground. And I don't think he did. From Jeremy Corbyn's side, they saw this as a big opportunity. He's a long way back in the polls. He's had a lot of negative press. People think, I think reasonably, that he's quite good at this format. And so for him, this was a chance to claw back some territory on Boris Johnson and show the side of himself that voters can find attractive. And I think, as the phrase that we've all used, there was no game-changing moment that massively made a difference or did Boris Johnson down. But I think there was one game-changing aspect of this for Jeremy Corbyn, which is simply that this event framed the choice for voters that said it's Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn. He put up a very solid performance, Jeremy Corbyn that is, particularly in the second half when we got off the Brexit part where he was weak. Once we got into the National Health Service, the economy and such like, he was much better. And I think Voters who are minded his way will have been a bit reassured by him. And I think what we will see over the next week is the beginning of quite a strong squeeze on the Liberal Democrats and the Labour and Remain that beginning to consolidate. So I think 
although it was scored as a draw and there was no knockout blow, my suspicion is that Labour will be slightly happier out of it than the Conservatives. Well, Laura Hughes, when you look at this debate, it was the first actual head-to-head debate we've had in UK electoral history that when we go back through the previous debates, there's always been a third candidate or in some cases five other candidates going head-to-head with the leader of Labour and the Conservatives. But this one, Joe Swinton, leader of the Liberal Democrats, much to her annoyance, was squeezed out. And as Robert said, it very much adds to this dynamic that, yes, the Liberal Democrats were doing quite well in the polls, they were playing a big role, but even though they talk about Joe Swinton as Britain's next Prime Minister, that's not going to happen and voters are going to increasingly see this as, do you want Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn and nothing else particularly matters? Yeah, I mean, this is why the Liberal Democrats took a case to court because they know how important it is to have a Liberal Democrat leader on stage. When Nick Clegg went up, that was the moment he really managed to make some traction in the polls. And the problem for Jo Swinson is, A, a lot of people still don't know who she is. And in fact, some YouGov polling that's just been put out shows the more exposure she has had, the less popular she is, which is really bad news for her. And the party is already being squeezed. And we're saying that this is going to be a huge problem. The fact she wasn't on the stage there is going to reinforce the message for the Tories. If you vote Lib Dem, you're at risk of putting Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street. And so that's why they didn't want her up there. And she really needed to be seen alongside the big two players in this election. So let's just have a look at some of the key parts of that debate. The first thing, as you said, Robert, was dominated by Brexit. Let's just hear a quick clip of the exchanges on that. Mr Corbyn is trying to conceal the void at the heart of his Brexit policy and refusing to answer the question of which side which side he would take because the public still the public thank have you. the right the public okay, have thank the right you, Mr. to know. Corbyn. just very just very I've, briefly I've Mr. made the position clear we will have a referendum we will have a negotiation <laughs> and we will abide by that result it's the we've, british people yes, we've heard who that. will thank make you, Mr. that Corbyn, decision we've heard that. So as we heard from that, Boris Johnson tried to highlight to Jeremy Corbyn the fact that he doesn't have a position on Brexit. He was saying, I'm trying to bring people together. I will let the British people decide on this question. Whereas Boris has his catchy slogan, we'll get Brexit done and get on with our lives, which, as we both know, is not exactly honest. Yeah, and I think it was very interesting that... You heard Jeremy Corbyn a number of times using this phrase, let's get Brexit sorted, which the eagle-eared among you will have noticed is quite similar to get Brexit done. And I think Labour is trying to develop a new line on this, which is essentially to say Boris Johnson isn't actually going to get Brexit done because the deal he offers leads to months and probably years of trade negotiations, whereas what Labour is talking about, the new deal it will seek to get – would definitely keep Britain in the customs union, therefore circumvent the need for those trade talks. So what they're trying to develop is an argument that says, actually, although you think it'd be over more quickly with Boris Johnson, it'll actually be over more quickly with us because we'll get a new deal, we'll save ourselves the need for trade talks, and then we'll put it to a referendum, and one way or another, it will be better. Unfortunately... That's quite a lot more of a mouthful than get Brexit done. And this has been Labour's big problem. The issue that you saw Jeremy Corbyn really hooked upon in the debate, and Boris Johnson kept making this point really, really ruthlessly, was, well, when you have your referendum, which side are you going to campaign on? Are you going to support the deal that you've just struck, which you're going to say is a great deal for Britain? Or are you going to support Remain and vote against your own deal? And the problem is that 
Jeremy Corbyn is on this hook, which is that he knows he does not want to alienate Leave voters or seem to be disrespecting the referendum. But he leads a Remain-minded party and I think would actually find it quite difficult to campaign for a Brexit once you've got into that referendum. So this is a nasty hook that he's on. He's put himself on it and Boris Johnson exploited it pretty ruthlessly and pretty effectively. And I thought Jeremy Corbyn looked very much on the back foot through that half of the debate. Indeed, and Laura, one of the things I was struck by was the fact that, first of all, Boris Johnson said, get Brexit done so many times. By the end, he was saying it. The audience were sighing in annoyance at just how often he kept saying it. But of course, that is the Conservative campaign playbook to say these key soundbites as much as possible in the hope that some ordinary voters will hear it. But the other thing that was quite striking was the laughter from the audience that when you looked at these two candidates to be prime minister, a lot of people were just sort of not even really taking them seriously and felt quite exasperated by the whole debate itself. Yeah, I mean, that was actually almost the most striking moment in the debates because it tells you that the public don't really take either of these men seriously. And the polling that came out immediately after showed that there was a tie in terms of who people thought had actually won it. And it's interesting that when the Prime Minister talked about there being no border down the Irish Sea, that was a moment that prompted some laughter because there has been this to and fro between cabinet ministers over what the actual Brexit deal is that the Prime Minister has negotiated and he's been found to have not necessarily told the truth on that. And the public have clearly really taken that message on and it's something that they found almost funny. It's quite depressing, though, that those two men up there did prompt that reaction from the audience and that neither of them are being taken seriously in what is potentially one of the most serious elections we've ever had. It's obviously important that it was a partisan audience, so people were primed to be on one side or the other. I think when you try and distill down what we got out of these debates, the point about Boris Johnson endlessly repeating his Brexit message is one of the few things that people can remember even 12 hours after this debate. And so in that sense, he hammered his point home. He was going on about Brexit all the time. Well, that's him getting his message over. And if you look at the standout moments from this debate, that's one. Well, I was just about to come on to the other moments of that debate, because we've now got a clip of the NHS exchange, which was very much one of the key points where Jeremy Corbyn went down much better. You've already indicated that uh, you will allow our National Health Service to be put at risk by a trade deal with the United States. There are no circumstances, whatever, in which this government or any Conservative government will put the NHS on the table in any trade negotiation. Our NHS will never be for sale. So as we heard from that, Robert, obviously the National Health Service is natural territory for the Labour Party. He made his point about the Conservatives underfunding the health service and allowing the NHS waiting times to get into their worst ever position. Boris Johnson tried to hit back and talk about all the money they're putting in, but it felt like that was the one moment where the Labour leader did come out on top. I think it was one of the two moments. I have one other, but I think it was definitely stronger territory for Jeremy Corbyn. I didn't think Boris Johnson did terribly on the health section, which would have been the one he was most worried about. Jeremy Corbyn had this passage about this friend of his who died of breast cancer, but he sort of made the point and then moved on. He mocked Boris Johnson's pledge to build 40 hospitals, but the problem is you are also reminding people of his pledge to build 40 hospitals. So although I thought Jeremy Corbyn came out the better on the interest exchanges, I thought it was curiously underpowered. And I thought his attack line on Boris Johnson putting the NHS up for sale in a trade deal with Donald Trump, I thought Boris Johnson batted that one away very effectively, actually. 
So to conclude this on the debate, Laura, what's your sense on where it leaves us now in the campaign? Because maybe being a bit cynical and having watched too many of these debates, it did just strike me that it didn't change the dynamics really at all. And as we know, Labour are quite far behind in this debate. And I think in some ways you could say Jeremy Corbyn did appear better than some might have thought, that he's not necessarily a bad debater, as people might think, but he didn't really change the dynamic at all in this. And for Boris Johnson, he was more focused, a bit less waffly than before. But generally speaking, it just feels like we're pretty much where we were 24 hours ago. Yeah, I don't think that that debate has really changed anything at all. And in a way, it really was on Jeremy Corbyn to have a breakout moment because Boris Johnson has a lead in the polls. It was his to win it. Jeremy Corbyn really didn't do what he needed to. So you could argue that the Prime Minister came away victorious for all the points that you outlined in your question. And it's hard to say what it changed. But what's interesting is how many people did actually tune in and watch it and who are engaged on this. But the polling after just reflects the fact that the country is still divided, not only on Brexit, but now on who they think should be the next Prime Minister. I think you're being a little harsh in your assessment in terms of Jeremy Corbyn and the debate. I think it was in some respects better for him than it was for Boris Johnson, not because he landed a knockout blow, but because they're quite hard to come by anyway. But I think he came across quite well. He established himself as the only alternative. And there was one moment for me, almost the breakout moment, which was this snap question on what do you think of the monarchy, where he thought on his feet very quickly and said, needs some improvement. And Boris Johnson was clearly quite flat-footed by it. And I think people looked at that and thought, he does have something which resonates with me. So I think at the end of the week, when we have the manifesto launch, which follows, he will begin to feel quite happy that it's been all right. Well, let's now move on to the manifestos because that is the point at which the parties are going to put forward their plans for government and they get scrutinised on much more policy. So, Jim Picard, let's have a look at Labour's manifesto. That is due to be launched on Thursday and we've got some general hints about what's going to be in it thanks to your excellent reporting over the past couple of days. Compared to 2017, how is this manifesto going to look and feel to voters? So, I think... What happened in 2017, as a lot of listeners will already know, is that it was the break with the consensus of the previous 20 or 30 years that you couldn't go into an election being open about higher taxes and higher spending without suffering. If you look back at Michael Foot in 1983, you know, no one wants to go back to a blatant left-wing tax and spending manifesto. And yet Jeremy Corbyn did that in 2017 and actually came away with 40% of the vote. So I think it's going to be along the same lines, but it will go further in many respects. For example, we already had a plethora of nationalisations in 2017. We're now going to have B to open reach added to that. We're also going to have these inclusive ownership funds, which I'm a little bit obsessed with. The rest of the media maybe less so, but they are a raid on shareholders, FT readers to the tune of several hundred billion pounds. That we discovered yesterday is definitely in there. An awful lot of corporate governance changes which weren't there last time but it will feel more or less similar to 2017 in many ways but the figures will be bigger the borrowing will have gone up from 250 billion for capital spending to 400 billion the number of social housing units that they're aiming to build will go up it's kind of similar to 17 but on steroids and what's the reason that is on steroids do you think because obviously they lost the 2017 election they are still quite far behind in the opinion polls but is there a sort of sense in Jeremy Corbyn's circle this is one last effort they have to deliver a real socialist plan for this country or do they feel this thing can genuinely win I take your point about Labour not winning last time round, but the way they would see it was that Ed Miliband, with his slightly fudged somewhere between Blairism and Corbynism, only got around 30% of the vote. 
Corbyn with his radical tax and spend programme got 40%. So by drawing a line between those two, I think some of them are thinking radicalism doesn't harm them, especially in the polarised world that we live in. I think also bear in mind that the membership of the Labour Party is incredibly left-wing these days and actually probably a lot more left-wing than the shadow cabinet. Whether it's more left-wing or not than Jeremy Corbyn is a moot point. But where Jeremy Corbyn is restrained by union leaders, the PLP, some of his more moderate shadow cabinet colleagues, the membership is not restrained. And when you give them a vote on things at Labour conference, as we saw in September, they do take the radical option. They choose total freedom of movement for people all over the world to come to Britain with no barriers at all. They do choose the 2030 zero carbon target. And they do choose to basically steal the assets of all private schools. And what we've seen in the last few months is the Corbyn leadership pushing back on some of those policies because they're thinking, well... The manifesto we've drawn up is pretty damn radical, even without these things. That's one thing that we have seen, Robert, is they are trying to bring together something that they think will play well with the electorate with what the party wants. Yeah, and of course what they believe. If you look back to the 2017 election, all elections build up their own myths and narratives. And one of the narratives that the Labour leadership and Jeremy Corbyn's adherents have bought into is the fact that they fought too nervous and too defensive an election in 2017, that actually they only targeted the seats they were trying to stop the Tories winning rather than trying to win more Tory seats, that they held themselves in check and that if only we'd gone for a full-throated, red-blooded socialist manifesto in every possible way, we might have attracted more voters. Now, you can argue about whether that's right, but that is what a lot of them have persuaded themselves is the case. And so they see no disadvantage in going for it full this time. But I think one of the interesting lessons that we might end up taking away from this in December is that the narrative within Labour, within Corbyn's inner circle, is that when the British public saw their man, they kind of fell in love with him. Let's not forget that what might have actually happened was that the British public saw Theresa May and fell out of love or like with her. It was very much an anti-Theresa May vote. And a lot of people did vote on the basis that they'd been told this guy Jeremy Corbyn couldn't possibly be in number 10. And therefore, they felt you could do this protest vote for him, even if you didn't necessarily like him. Well, he's not going to have that this time. The other party that have launched its manifesto this week, of course, is the Liberal Democrats law that they put forward their plan for government. And obviously, we should state that this is unlikely to be a plan for government since we are thinking that they could take anything up to 40 seats. But beyond that seems a bit more unlikely. So what they're proposing is maybe not as relevant. But of course, they could still end up being coalition partners, formal or informal, with another party after this election. Yeah, I mean, that is the big question. Nobody is expecting Joe Swinson to be prime minister. But if there is a hung parliament, they could become really crucial in setting up a new government. And that's why these policy announcements are relatively important. You just never know if they'll end up working with Labour, maybe under a different Labour leader. But the manifesto was absolutely no surprise. They are positioning themselves as the party of the Remain and Brexit at the heart of this manifesto. They're saying that their pledge to cancel Brexit and stop it altogether would leave the economy 1.9% bigger than it would be if we left the EU under the terms of the Prime Minister's Brexit agreement. And they're saying that they'll use that £50 billion that they would have to invest into public services. So they're pledging money for schools, talking about recruiting 20,000 new teachers. They're talking about bringing in different taxes, so a frequent flyer tax. Obviously, they're not going to get into power, but they are being very extreme because they think it's a matter of setting themselves apart from the Labour Party. 
and there are no real surprises in there and it's pretty much what we were expecting to see. And so finally, I'm going to ask all of you where the campaigns are in this week. We're a week and a half into the general election and we've had the first TV debate. Things are starting to hot up a little bit. So for each of the campaigns, where are they are and how are they feeling about it? And so Laura with the Liberal Democrats. We're already starting to see them being squeezed by the Labour Party who have pledged a second referendum. And that is really quite worrying, but also it's expected. And as I mentioned earlier, the polling that's very specifically looked into Joe Swinton's popularity isn't good. She has put herself at the heart of their message. Her face is all over leaflets on top of the bus and it clearly doesn't seem to be cutting through. And their very hardline stance on revoking Article 50 might be scaring people off and it's pushing them towards Labour. And there is also this argument, if you're a pro-Remain Tory, you're worried that a vote for the Lib Dems will get you Labour and that could impact your personal finances. And Jim, for the Labour Party, where do they feel they are in the campaign so far that, as we said about Mr Corbyn during the debate, he came out of it unscathed, but still doesn't feel like there's that momentum yet that we got in 2017. Maybe it will come after the manifesto to put them in a pole position of forming the next government. So I think there are two views here. There's the view of some of the ground troops who are keen Corbynistas and they took the lesson away from 2017 that you can be behind in the polls by 20 points and you can burn through that poll lead that the Tories have. And lots of them are still optimistic that things will turn out all right. When you talk to Jeremy Corbyn's inner circle, they are quite worried. They are worried, firstly, that the whole Brexit issue has made it much harder for them to be the insurgents. And there is something about Boris Johnson's appeal to people over Brexit, the sort of sense of energy around getting things done on this one issue that has annoyed people, frustrated people for three years. I think also there's a realisation, talking to a lot of people in the inner circle, that this is not an election about Jeremy Corbyn winning majority. It's an election for them about depriving Boris Johnson of his majority. And then you could potentially cobble together this government of Labour with the SNP and maybe the Lib Dems, and it wouldn't have to be a coalition. It could be something more informal, like confidence and supply arrangement. But then they are looking deep into their souls and they're asking the question of, well, yes, we could do this anti-Boris Johnson, Heath Robinson contraption of a semi-coalition government, and it would prevent a hard Brexit. But beyond that, what could it achieve? And they, the Corbynistas, see their dreams of reshaping the capitalist economy and changing things in a quite revolutionary way, being totally frustrated in that scenario. And therefore, it would be quite a peric victory for a lot of them if they do get into power, but they can't do the things they dream of. And finally, Robert, the Conservatives. Well, I would liken where the Conservatives are at the moment to watching your football team defending a 1-0 lead with 20 minutes to go. I think the Conservative campaign is more or less where they want it to be. It's more or less on track. Boris Johnson's had a few tiny little wobbles. His flood visit wasn't very good. But by and large, he's holding his own. And I think they're not as concerned about Jeremy Corbyn as they became at the end of the last campaign because they think he's much more of a known quantity. And they don't think people are going to find out things about him they didn't know before. So I think the Conservatives are feeling all right. They feel it's going their way. But there's this terrible feeling about this one shoe that could drop somewhere else. And what is it and how will they deal with it? 
And of course, we shouldn't forget the Brexit party who are still continuing campaigning away, but their polling numbers have almost halved and nobody's listening too much to what they say now. That's it for your midweek episode of the FT Election Countdown. Thank you very much to Robert, Laura and Jim for joining. In the meantime, if you'd like to see more general election coverage, then you can find it on FT.com and you can find our latest subscription offers at FT.com forward slash offer. FT Election Countdown was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. We'll be back on Saturday with our full rundown of the election week. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.